Well, this morning, I uh, hope you believe that. I think it's good reminders of God and what power He holds, uh, not only over sin and death, but also over our own lives and the power of sin that may uh, be there. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, so if you want to grab your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, we are finishing up Corinthians. Um, we're going to be hitting 14. We've hit 15 this last Easter, and then 16 we're just going to make a couple notes on as we kind of talk about Paul and his leaving and his desire to see the church uh, continue to share the gospel as he uh, finishes writing to them in Corinthians. But today uh, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 um, in a passage that is complex, but also I feel like really isn't uh, all that overwhelming. Um, it's, it's really Paul's desire here in the book of 1 Corinthians and specifically in this chapter uh, to remind us that we are to build up the church. I'll say it a lot and we're going to make mention of that. Um, before we jump into 14, this was in the pews last week. If you're missing a Philippians journal, um, I have it so you can grab that afterwards. Um, there is no real lost and found except just my hands. So if you have that, um, it is with me, and I would gladly give that back to you, uh, continue in that. So um, this morning, we're going to be talking about um, spiritual gifts, and I'm going to stay specifically in my notes a lot. And so this morning is going to be kind of heady probably for many of us, um, but I think it's important for us to understand uh, this idea of spiritual gifts, particular when it comes to tongues and prophecy that is found predominantly in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. There's going to be a lot of stuff thrown at you this morning, okay? So there's going to be a lot of verses, a lot of texts, and a lot of things to write down. You are not going to get everything you need out of this conversation this morning, uh, but hopefully we'll give you some, some insight into where we are as a church, and um, hopefully it will be something you can engage in more conversation later because here's the thing that uh, I know about this topic of spiritual gifts when it comes even to the miraculous gifts. Um, we truly believe that it's, it's not a um, primary issue but more of a secondary issue and it's something that we feel like you can belong here and disagree with us on different things uh, and this is probably one of those things that we wouldn't say you have to leave here if you don't agree with where I land today but I'd love to have more of a conversation with you in where uh, we land this morning. So uh, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, and uh, many would say they've ceased to be gifts today, specifically in pro- prophecy and tongues, and that they would, that would represent, one, represent one side of the debate. And so on this side of the debate, there's, there's many people who would say the things we talk about today have ceased for today's church, and there are plenty of authors and books and libraries full of people who believe that that is true. Now, on the other side, uh, are what called our continuationists. Uh, and continuationists believe that all of the gifts are still in effect today and they still are able to be used in the church today. And that list would be huge. And you would recognize many names on that side of the aisle as well. And no matter which side you lean on this morning, I want to kind of draw us back into, yes, we'll, we'll talk about those, but ultimately I, I want to remind us that the purpose of 14 isn't so much to divide us over gifts, it's really to remind us that we are to be building up the church, and he'll say that often. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So one big thing I want you to hear this morning, whether you're on this side or that side, Paul has a bigger theme than dividing us. And whichever side, cessation or continuation, those are the smaller buckets. Because honestly, when you look at the, what the Holy Spirit does in our life, there's a list here, and this isn't all of the things he does. This is just some. And you can't read them all because there's so many and they're all jumbled and I couldn't really fit them all on one slide. But the Holy Spirit in the church age, which is today, does all of these things. And in the middle of those, the big things he talks about in 14 is builds up the church. 
And so all of these things are what he does. And so often we get tied into the gifts, but that's just a piece of what the Holy Spirit does and not all that the Holy Spirit does. And so again, um, as we look at the gifts, I don't want them to be overwhelming to you, but I do want you to have some reference as far as what they are when we talk about spiritual gifts, especially when we talk about prophecy and tongues um, today. So I want to stick to my notes, as I said, because you may be here listening on uh, or, or online and, and maybe for your first time hearing about the topic, this may be new for some of you. Uh, you may be here and do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and this topic may just seem weird to you. You're like, I knew Christians were weird. This just like proves how weird they are. Um, you may be here and speak in tongues and believe in prophecy and are not sure whether you fit in here or not. Some of you may be here and think that tongues and prophecy is dangerous and reckless, and, and you, you fight the other extreme. And you may be here and believe that the Bible clearly talks about them both, but not really sure where you land. And so no matter how you come in this morning, I think we all come in with some kind of uh, background when, it's, when we talk about these things of prophecy and tongues. So I say all that not to divide us, just to be authentic and say, as we approach the text today, let's be mindful that we are a body. Because in chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says this, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. And then in 1226, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This morning, the theme is we are together in this. And I believe Paul's main theme is we must build each other up because we are the church. Now, tongues and prophecy are probably the most debated topics in the church today and can very often divide us into these teams. And I don't want us to miss, again, as we said, that Paul is not telling us to avoid them. He's not telling us to run away from them. Uh, They were just kind of out of control in the church in Corinth, which is a side statement. Isn't it interesting that Paul could have said to this church that had this really messed up view of tongues and prophecy just to be like, knock it off, stop it, don't do it anymore. But instead, he's going to end with like, keep going, keep doing these things, keep loving God through your gifts. And we're going to see, again, the goal of 12 to 14, chapters 12 to 14 Corinthians is not to come divide and throw stones. It's to help us see the amazing role the Holy Spirit has in this. As we said last week, when we reverse the order of love and gifts, things get messy and people get burnt and we don't want that to be true today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's jump in. Enough of the intro. Let's go ahead and get into the meat of this. Um, 14 verses 1 through 5 says this, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's his theme right off the bat. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. Now, let's just kind of dive into that first. Verse 1, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gift. Spiritual gift here is, we've talked about this. It's two words for spiritual gift. There's charismata, which is basically when he's talking about the gifts being the focus of the, of the word. But then there's also a word called pneumonica. And this is the idea when the emphasis is not on the gift, but the emphasis is on the power behind the gift, and that is the Holy Spirit. In this verse, it is pneumonica, and that is the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the focus for chapter 14, not just the gift. So that's interesting as we start in. For he says in verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So apparently we know that the tongues then, there's some form of tongues that is specifically to God, that is in reference to him specifically, and it's not really understandable except to the person praying or talking to God. And mysteries the spirit, and it's a thing that we don't really fully know, but it's something that they say is 
is, is this idea of, of language that we're talking to God in our tongues. And then he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies, which is the other big topic of chapter 14, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Two gifts, tongues and prophecy are some of the most confusing and most debated in Christianity today. This is not new. Paul's writings were around 54 AD, and there are records that tongues even existed throughout the early church. And if you look at church history from the the Holy Catholic Church of the 1500s to the Reformation, tongues has always been part of the conversation and prophecy as well. So let's dive into tongues first, and then we're going to dive into prophecy second. And I'm going to give you some definitions this morning to work from that I think will be helpful as we look through this passage. Again, keeping in verses 1 through 5. So tongues, let's just start there. Tongues are definitive for some, and they believe tongues are a certainty for Christians. So there is a belief out there that tongues are definitive for some. Uh, they say this is, uh, uh, the Bible is very clear that tongues are not only to be exercised, but they are a certainty for all believers. And so let's be fair this morning, uh, though, and say that there are many who have spoken in tongues or even do so today and would say the Bible does not say that all Christians will speak in tongues or should speak in tongues. But some on on the aisle would say, no, it's part of the idea of being saved. And if you're saved, you're speaking in tongues. Uh, And there's others that would say, no, I, I still speak in tongues. I believe in tongues, but I don't believe that all Christians are required to speak in tongues. And Paul says in chapter 12 that it is not for everyone to speak in tongues. He says, do all speak in tongues? And he talks about many different gifts. And so he says, while some are uh, definitive that tongues exist, let me throw a caution out there that not every religious experience when it comes to tongues is even divine. And so we have to walk that tension because there are other uh, Eastern religions as well as witchcraft and voodoo and things that claim to speak in tongues. Now, hear me. I am not advocating that speaking in tongues is witchcraft. I am not on that side of the aisle, okay? There may be some on this side of the aisle that would say, if you're speaking in tongues, it's voodoo and it's witchcraft. We need to stay away from it because you're going to cite demons, and that's not, uh, that's not my, my camp, okay? Um, I just am saying we need to be cautious in how we handle them, and I'm not advocating that they are witchcraft, although there are some that would say that. Uh, I just want to say that there are some that, that that is part of that religion that they actually have speaking in tongues as part of it. Now, tongues um, as well, as far as the topic is concerned, are marked by confusion and fear for many. And the reason for this may be that there is not much in the Bible that talks about tongues. And a lot of our probably a lot of our beliefs on tongues comes from our experiences, right? We may have been in a church that speaks in tongues, and it may have been a very good and, and, pro, and a very profitable exercise. For some, you've been in maybe a situation where it wasn't always healthy, and, and you've come from your experience. But when we just look at the Bible, that there's not much evidence on either side in the Bible. And the reason for that is, honestly, that the biblical evidence for cessation of tongues, I believe, is a weak one from, from the Bible. And I would say that the continuation of them in the Bible is also a weak one. The Bible is, is a gray area when it comes to whether they have ceased or whether they continue. And so for us, we see this, if the Bible's not clear, and if the Bible's not 100% in this, then we will say, well, let's, just give, let's just give room for conversation and talk on both sides. Because I believe that there's there's not a passage in Scripture that says it is or it isn't continuing or ceased. And so we just need to put that out there and say this is just for the conversation of where we are in chapter 14. Now, 
tongues define in the Bible. Here we go. A lot more heady knowledge today. Some of you are like, whew, we're just getting into this? Yes. All right, here we go. Tongues defined in the Bible. At Pentecost, in the book of Acts, this is where we first see the, the idea of tongues as if, when it comes into Scripture. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Tongues are intelligible languages that may require translation. If you look at the book of Acts, that's what you see here in the very beginning in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues and as the Spirit gave them utterance now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven and at the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all those who are speaking Galileans and how is it that we hear each of us in our native language Parthians, Medes, Amelites, and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cambodia and Pontus, Asia Phyrene, uh, I can't pronounce it, Pephilimia, uh, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. But Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying together, what does this mean? And in the midst of all of this, you had those in the crowd that are still there today. Verse 13, but others mocked them, saying they're filled with new wine. <laughs> they're drunk. They're wasted. Um, this is exactly what a new church was going to be. It's just a weird place. and They're all wasted, and it's just not anything to be to deal with. But Acts, and when we look at the book of Acts and we look at the tongues in Acts, there are instances of tongues, there are few instances of tongues happening again and again from the context, but ultimately what we see is that it is a language that is to be... Um, that may require translation and an actual language. Peter, when he sent to Cornelius' house for the gospel to be spread to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verses 45 to 47, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So you can see, even in, when, Paul, or when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, it was a language that they understood what was being said. Paul, when he started the church at Ephesus, in Ephesus, uh, whenever the, when he started this church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verses 6 to 7, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues. There were about 12 men in all. And if you look at the context of Acts chapter 19, it is a language in which they understood. So as you can see, tongues and acts occurs in groups, and we as elders believe that the primary purpose of tongues is to demonstrate the advancement of the gospel by authenticating the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And there's more that could be shared in that before today. That's, that's where we want to let you know where we stand on, on the actual Acts passages that are in there. Now, however, tongues elsewhere in the Bible... Tongues are unintelligible languages that may warrant interpretation elsewhere in the Bible, specifically here in chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 14, verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but for no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the spirit. Verses 14, 14 to 7, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And so you see here in chapter 14 that tongues in Corinth occurs with individuals, and its primary purpose is to edify the church. 
So you have Acts, you have Corinthians when it comes to tongues. And not only that, but you also see in verse 14, there's what many say is there is a prayer language. And so the other question is, is there a prayer language of tongues? And some of you would say with absolute confidence, absolutely it is. Yes, and I experience it and I pray in that way. And, and, and I believe it edifies me as Paul says it would in 1 Corinthians. And so experientially you would say, yes, absolutely. Some of you would here would say, no, that weirds me out. Um, let's, just, let's, just, let's just close the door to that. There's too many unknowns. Regardless of how you interpret this passage, though, let me just say that it is clear in Scripture that there is some kind of language to be prayed that is for the purpose of edifying the person who is praying as they're having a conversation with God. And it is primarily, as he just said in verses 14 to 17, it is this idea of giving thanks that, that they are being built up, but others are not. And let me say as well, regardless of how we interpret this passage, you are welcome here because this is a non-salvation issue. And I believe Paul wants us to know that it is not about a dividing issue for us, that it is a clear picture of another way that the Spirit works in our lives. I personally uh, have never prayed in tongues, and I personally have never spoken in tongues. However, I have been in circumstances and circles in which people were praying in tongues, and they were edified, and they could share with me specifically um, what God was saying in their prayer life. And it not only edified them, it actually edified the group that was there. And so um, I think we can't get too weirded out or too dogmatic on both sides of the prayer language issue because, again, it's only mentioned here in chapter 14, and, and it's one of those things that again, is non-salvific when it comes to what we believe as a church. Let me say this as well. Speaking in tongues is primarily directed to God in Scripture, and speaking in tongues occurs in the Spirit, okay? We're going to talk about that in just a second, but next week, we're going to look at tongues in a church service. In verses 14, 26 to 40, he talks about how that actually works in the church at Corinth and, and, and some things for us as well. But tongues specifically here, is a language, we know that, and it may require interpretation, and it's meant for the edification of, of the body, and it was meant for uh, the idea of solidifying the, 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 the church as it started in the book of Acts. And then somehow Paul in here says, but also we need to think about tongues in the way that it works in um, the church as well, because he says that it is there for the edification and building up of the church. Now, that's tongues. Let me get to prophecy then. And this is the second thing that's mentioned here. He says that not only the tongues, but he says, I would prefer that you would prophesy. He says, I would actually ask that you would desire to do it. Prophecy was one of the main gifts that Paul always goes back to. He loves this gift. And there's a reason, I think, why he loves this gift and why I think it's important to talk about today when we talk about ceasing or not and all those kind of pieces. Now, Prophecy defined, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 4 through 5, 14, verses 4 through 5. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. Prophecy is one of Paul's favorite gifts, uh, and those who hold staunchly to cessationism see prophecy as dangerous, and they see it as dangerous because it has been and could continue to be used to speak over Scripture. Cessationists on the topic of prophecy and the issue of prophecy would accuse the other side of the continuationists as not using their Bible. And here's the other side. The continuationists would see prophecy and they would say, no, it's still a gift for today. And they would accuse the cessationists of, of not using the Spirit. 
That makes sense? And so on one side, they're like, no, 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 it's just the Bible. It's just head knowledge. It's just the way we do it. And we cut everything else out because that's the way God works. And they would say on one side, well, you're just, you're just too heady. You're just all about the Bible and you're not allowing the Holy Spirit's role. I mean, look at all of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The Holy Spirit's amazing. And, and if you're just living life, you, you could possibly be quenching the Holy Spirit. And he's, that's, that's a command that we don't want to do. And then the other side... Um, they, they would accuse the idea of, of, of using all spirit and no Bible. To which I would say, this is a great quote from David Platt. He says this, without the spirit, we are dead. And without the scriptures, we are deluded. I think it has to be both. And I love having conversations with men, brother, men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ who, who disagree with me on these issues of cessation and continuationists. And yet we sit down and we have a conversation and we both approach it biblically and we walk away and we say, you know what? We're not real clear with each other on it, but here's what we do know, that the scripture is the authoritative word of God and nothing comes against it. And we have got to start not using, we've got to start opening ourselves up to say, the Holy Spirit's role in my life, what does it look like? Because here's my fear, and this is not in my notes, let me just go side topic here. Here's my fear, is that if we're all head and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we get through our entire life and we get to eternity and God's like, did you experience any joy? Did you build up the church at all? Did you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life so that you couldn't do it all yourself? And we get to eternity, he's like, you missed it. You missed it. You were so caught up in your own self and your own needs and your own mind that you missed the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And here's what I know about how the Holy Spirit works in the filling us today. It is not so much a filling on top of we get more and more and more. Here's what happens. We are only filled by the Holy Spirit when we get less and the Spirit fills the rest of the gap. Does that make sense? When we surrender and yield, when we make ourselves less, the Spirit comes in and builds more in our life. Without the Spirit, we are dead. Without the Scriptures, we are deluded. And as we define prophecy, let me give you one big statement that covers tongues and prophecy and pretty much any other area of your life. (laughs) The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is true. The Bible is unique. The Bible is complete. You cannot add to it, take away from it. The Bible is able to stand alone on its own. It is complete. We cannot add to it. In the great words of Charles Spurgeon, he says, there seems to be, to, to me, to have been twice as, done, as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. He says the Bible should be able to defend itself. And he gives us this great quote that's been used by many pastors in me today. He says, the Bible is this thing that can defend itself. And we are to, he quotes, he says, and we quote him, we are to Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. It is unique, authoritative, and we don't need to worry about it defending itself or, or, or worrying ourselves too much about the power that it holds because it can handle its own weight. And especially when it comes to prophecy, we have to run everything back through Scripture. When it comes to prophecy, there's, there's a couple terms in the Bible when it comes to prophecy outside of chapter 14. There's false prophecy, 
which is met with some pretty severe consequences in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, with all your heart, with all your soul. Deuteronomy 18, but the prophet who presumes to speak in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. Okay, so that's pretty, that's pretty aggressive. Um, you don't wanna be a false prophet because that ends poorly for you. Um, but he says there, there, in the Old Testament specifically, there was a lot of that false prophets that were, that were, to be, uh, that were, that were happening. It consists of dishonest lies. It involved deceptive, not based, deception based, not, not, ba- not based on revelation. And false prophecy also ignores divine scripture. Now, prophecy throughout the Bible, we can get into this. There's, there's too much. But, but let me just say for today that if it ignores divine scripture, then we really need to take uh, we need to really just kind of avoid it because everything should be run through Scripture. There have been many times where somebody has said to me personally, or you may have had an experience where somebody says, I've heard from God this, or, hey, uh, did something happen to you on X date of this day and this month? Did, did, did something happen to you? And did, did God really move in that moment? And, and they say, I, I thought for sure God was going to move, and I thought for sure that was going to happen. And, and what they said was going to happen wasn't really lined up with Scripture, but they thought for sure it was going to happen. And I think... Oftentimes, I don't know if that's false prophecy or as much as just their, their intentions um, outweigh the, the, the Bible in it, but, but ultimately what happens is it doesn't come true, and then it's like, well, where, where's God in that, and, and how do I work through that? Ultimately, we run everything through Scripture. Everything runs through the Bible. That kind of prophecy of false prophecy needs to be called out, and biblical prophecy is not and let me just say this, biblical prophecy is not some cleaned up version of a fortune teller, okay? Biblical prophecy is direct words from God to our lives to where we can use it for the building up of the church. True prophecy then consists of inspired truth, involved direct speech based upon new revelation. This is biblical. This is, this is the Bible's definition before we get into where we are in the church age. It involved direct speech based upon new revelation and authors of the Old and New Testament were part of that new revelation as they wrote down the words to Scripture. The result of true prophecy in the Bible from there to the end of the, the time we have the Bible complete, it results in divine Scripture. All that to say, you and I are not Isaiah, you and I are not Jeremiah or, or any other writer of this, of this book. This book is closed and um, side note, I'm working on some videos on how we got the Bible, where did it come from, but for today, prophecy is so debated because of how much damage false prophecy or a prophecy not backed by Scripture can do. So that's prophecy in general, okay, from Old Testament to New Testament. It was, it was, it was divinely inspired by God to write the Old New Testament, but the gift of prophecy mentioned here, let me say something about the gift of prophecy that I think Paul is talking about here in 14. The gift of prophecy mentioned here consists of spirit-prompted talk. It must be tested by divine scripture and would wisely be brought before the elders, if prophecy is going to be in the continuation camp, here's the parameters I would put on it being in the continuation camp. The prophecy mentioned here consists of spirit-prompted talk. It is God working through you. It must be tested by divine scripture and would wisely be brought before the elders of the church to say, hey, am I getting this right? I feel like God's saying this to me. I feel like he spoke to me and I really feel like I wanna know more about it. And here's the other thing I would say about the gift of prophecy. The, the gift of prophecy is it, it can be imperfect and I believe it can, be, it can be fallible because we can get our own minds and our own agendas into it. And that's why we run all of God's promptings to us through the scriptures and not just run headlong into whatever it is we feel God is telling us we should do. We run everything through scripture. 
I think that's the balance in the two camps, cessation and continuation. If we run everything back through Scripture, I think we can come out on the same page and come out on the other side, building up the body of church. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3 says it like this, and this is why I get the idea of the gift of prophecy being imperfect and infallible. 2 Corinthians chapter First, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by the spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way, for, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction. There was this moment where they were hearing things and he says, hey, you need to test it through the word of God. Similar to that, yet different uh, and distinct from in, in, in the idea of teaching is Romans chapter 12 verses 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Big takeaways then from prophecy are this. Scripture alone contains authoritative truth for all situations of all times. We got to know that. Bare bones. Even if it's truth for all situations and not all. So whoever Al is, his situations are very important to us. Um, That's my bad. Uh, So, and then to consider that the Spirit may grant the gift of prophecy to apply biblical truth at particular times or in particular situations, okay? Example, how many coincidences have there been when in prayer God will say, I need you to reach out to this person or make a call or I need you to go outside and take this this conversation on or whatever. So for instance, um, when we were at our our house and in Akron, there was this prompting, like, you just need to go outside, you need to go talk to your neighbor. And I'm like, no, I don't want to go do that. I know you need to go do that. You need to go, you need to go talk to him. There was nothing in Scripture that said, Joel 1, 1, go talk to thy neighbor. He needeth me because he is a heathen. It was all true. But, um, and, <laughs> and he would tell you that. He had no problem telling me that. And, and, uh, and, I, and it was this thing where I'm like, you just need to go and you need to go have a conversation with him. Now, what was that? Was that me? Was that just like, I should do that because I heard in a sermon that I should go and love my neighbors? Or was that truly the Spirit? I would say initially it was, it was probably me at some point, just kind of like, oh, I should probably do that. But then it got louder and louder and louder and louder. And sure enough, I go over to talk to my neighbor and um, we had bought extra burgers at this point. And I said, hey, would you want to come over for barbecue and just hang out and talk? And wouldn't you know it, his immediate response, like you asked that of any stranger, what's their normal reaction? Like, mm, I'm good. You know, like, I don't know you. I don't know what you put in the burgers. Wouldn't you know it? I ask him, first thing he says, absolutely, I'll be there now. I'm like, now. And so he grabs his wife and kid and they're coming on over and we start, and I think back and I'm like, God worked in the midst of that. And there was nothing in scripture that, that, defi- that, that went against that moment. There are moments when I'm preaching and in teaching where I feel like God's asking me to say something and to, and to put it out there. And they would say, well, what is that? I think that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives to say, I want you to do this because it's not your own. It's something I give you. But ultimately, everything runs through Scripture, to which I have to say, I was really, really convicted as I was looking through this series and in this sermon specifically, I was really convicted to say, Joel, there are times when you're preaching where you just kind of go off cuff and it's great because it's funny and ah, great, you build a relationship. But ultimately you got to watch because there are certain things that come out of your mouth that maybe aren't really biblical, but people can take to be biblical that comes from, that they think comes from me, but it maybe it isn't and it's just you building the crowd. To which as a pastor you go, Ooh, okay, that's big. I'm going to sit down now and I'm going to let your word talk. 
So this morning, as I talk about prophecy and tongues, you need to understand that I am still working through this myself to say, I am not God. He is, and His Word communicates truth, and He will use His Holy Spirit in our lives. And with all that, the question is, are those, are, the question is still remains, sign gifts, are they still present today or are they not? And elders would, our elders would say that they have ceased, and yet they would also allow room for me in this room to personally say to you, I'm still working through this. And you're like, wait, 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 you're the pastor, you planted the church, like this whole thing. Like, I thought you were supposed to be like, sure, and all this stuff. And I had the conversation with them um, before preaching this, and I've always kind of leaned hard into the cessation. But the more I study, the more I'm looking at these passages, I'm like, I don't know that I'm fully convinced uh, of the things that, that, that were there. And, and I think I've got some biblical arguments because I can give you the seven arguments that cessationists use, and, 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 and I, I, I believe some are really, really valid. But I also have seen some things in Scripture that aren't really as clear. One of those would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 to 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, you will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And for many in church world, that perfect comes, they've always assumed that means when the Bible's complete. And I don't know that I can truly say that that is definitively what Paul meant in that passage. I think it makes sense and it kind of fits within the idea of redemptive history and what you see in church history and it kind of makes sense, but, but I don't think it's definitive enough to say that's exactly why I believe in cessationism. Because I truly believe if you stay in context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is where the elders and I can talk about this and, and bat these things around and we still love each other at the end of the day. We can come around these things and say, yeah, but when the perfect comes, if you stay in context, it's actually talking about Christ's return. And it talks about when he arrives here. And if you stay in context, it's pretty clear. He's talking about when he comes back, not when the Bible is complete. And there's a whole thing with that. And so I find that the, the arguments on both sides can be made persuasively on both sides. And I find that Probably, if I were to, to, to really nail it down, redemptive history makes the stronger argument, but I believe the passage, the perfect, is Christ coming as home. And so the big question that many ask is, one, if they ceased or they didn't cease, and I would say that I, I kind of lean that they've, they've ceased, but I've also seen things in Scripture that, that aren't really as clear. And so I want to give, I want to ask for grace, and I ask for grace in the elders too, and we, as we walk through these conversations as we continue on as your elders here at Community Bible Church. With that being said, the other question that comes up is, okay, let's say they exist. Are they normative for today? Normative means should they always be experienced on a regular basis? And I don't know that I see in Scripture that tongues is normative evidence of New Testament faith. And this goes back to the original thing of if I'm saved, then I'm speaking in tongues. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't think that it's normative evidence of the New Testament faith. I also would say speaking in tongues is not a salvation issue, and I don't know that it's even a proof of second baptism issue that many in the charismatic world would say it's, it's, it's the secondary uh, baptism that happens, and as that happens, you will speak in tongues. And they get that out of Acts and a couple chapters in there. I don't know that I see that. I see that God could still use it, but I don't see that as a normative issue. And with all of this, my fear is that we will miss the main point still of chapter 14 in the midst of taking these sides. And that's Paul's big message for us that is clear in this text. And this is where we're going to wrap up this morning. The purpose of all of this, I believe, in chapter 14 is not to divide us into different camps. And I would love to have conversations with you about either side of those issues. But I would just for the sake of this morning and, and for the sake of some, some, some of you are like, let's just, let's, just, let's just go back to the context. Let me just go back to context and let me just say this. We must always... No matter where we are on camps 
and we get grounded into camps, we must repent and submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, but not for the unique purpose of getting the gifts, any gifts. It's not to repent and submit to get the gifts of tongues of prophecy or any gifts. It's to remind ourselves who is in charge and that the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work. All of that to say, that's just the beginning of verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to give you the broad overview then of the rest of chapter 14, verses um, uh, 6 all the way then through 25. He says this, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people in the building, the one who uh, speaks, verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, then you build up. It, let's just kind of look real quick at verses 3 through 5, verse 12, 14, 17, 14, 26, because in all of these passages throughout this chapter, a theme develops in this. And it's not whether you're in this camp or this camp. The theme is developed here, and that is upbuilding, the building up of the church. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, verse 3. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church, verse 4. Verse 5, so that the church may be built up. Verse 12, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up up the church, okay? In, in verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty six. what then, brothers, when you come together, each one is a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, that all things be done for building up. The image Paul wants us to see is that the real goal of gifts is they serve to build up the church one wall at a time. It's the image of a construction site where the walls are being built and the structure is the church. And these gifts almost come in and start rebuilding from the interior and start putting up drywall, start putting in electrical and all these things. So the place has framing, but then as the spirit works, this thing comes together and becomes a home. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 20, sums everything up well. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in you're thinking, be mature. Maturity, let me just say this, doesn't equal just your, your stance on gifts. Maturity from Paul says it always deals with love and the building up of the church. So as we think of these two issues, as we think about this chapter, may we look to the Bible for our definitions. May, may that be the first thing we do. May we look to others in the body to serve and not provoke with where we stand on our issues. And may we see the gifts for what they are, working as the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church here and around the world. And may we seek God for our gifts this morning. And as we experience and as we grow in our knowledge of these things, would we give grace to one another as we work through them? Because again, the Bible doesn't give us a definitive yes, definitive no. It's one of those things that's just kind of a gray, but we can kind of use our reason and logic to reach one side or the other. But ultimately, I feel like for us here at Community, it's important for you to know the biggest thing we desire is that the church is being built up through the use of gifts. Let me pray for us this morning and close this out. God, that's a lot of information. Um, God, that's a lot of of, of, of uh stuff that Paul packs into a short chapter. Um, and God, there's more discussion to be had, but I pray for this morning that we would understand ultimately that you give gifts for the benefit of your church and for the building up of your church. And Father, that if we um, uh, are truly to love one another, we would love each other in how we even exercise these gifts. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't uh, be to come divided, but Father, that we would 
um, build us up even more as we use them. May we surrender to your spirit this week, knowing that we can get in the way very often of what you want to do. So I pray, God, that you would work in our lives this week. We would surrender what our plans are for the week, and we'd put them before you and say, you go first. Holy Spirit, would you speak first? And um, Father, we would follow along the way. Today we pray. Amen. This morning, we are not going to close in song because uh, it's just a lot of information to process. And again, I would really encourage you all uh, that this would be really good conversations to have with other people in the church uh, and really kind of talk through these issues. If you have questions, I would love to talk through them with you as well. But ultimately, may we build each other up as we strive to be the church God has created us to be.